Escape Pod 76 October 19th, 2006 Today's story, The Dinner Game, by Stephen Ely Hello, and welcome again to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely, and I want to use this intro to plug something I really should have talked about months ago a recent anthology called 20 Epics from All-Star Stories. The editors are David Moles and Susan Marie Groppi. This project came to my attention a few months before submissions opened because Teresa Nielsen Hayden at Tor was pointing to it as the best submission guidelines she'd ever seen. I'll read the introduction to those guidelines in their entirety. The problem. Epics have lost their charm. It takes 10 or 20 years for a writer to finish a series, writing the same book over and over again piling up the foreshadowing, wearing out characters' boots to no good purpose. By the time you're done, whether you're the reader or the writer, you can't remember why you started. That's where 20 Epics comes in. Like the neurological anomaly that sparks deja vu, like the false memories implanted in Blade Runner's replicants, 20 Epics shortcuts the repetition and the tedium of reality and goes straight to what we really care about, the subjective, emotional, and aesthetic experience. There was a time when you finished an epic. When finishing an epic left you feeling not discontent and exhausted, but joyous, melancholy, rejuvenated, satisfied, left you feeling, even, at least for a little while, that you were a better and wiser person for the experience. If we do our jobs right, each of the pieces in 20 epics will bring back that feeling. In 10,000 words or less. It's a daring hypothesis. I am sympathetic... There's a difference between a real epic and the sort of fantasy series I've heard called an endlessology. The epic takes you somewhere. It brings the whole journey together into one moment. Whether it's Frodo with a crack of doom, or Odysseus coming home, or Dream facing the kindly ones. In those same guidelines, the editors give a list of other epics they liked, including the Foundation Trilogy, the Miles Davis albums, Birth of the Cool and Kind of Blue, and the 2004 American League Championship series. The challenge to distill that feeling, to make a short story that evokes the weight of an entire epic journey, that's not an easy thing, and the editors didn't tell writers how to do it. They just said, have fun, and let people figure it out for themselves. They also paid more for shorter stories than for longer ones. So what you end up with is 20 very different, very concentrated stories. It's an enthralling read. You may not like every piece, but it's got enough in it that I think most people will find something that'll carry them off. So, with a burning desire to promote the anthology, and with 20 stories to pick from, well, I caved into Ego, and we're giving you my story, The Dinner Game. This work was a bit of a stylistic departure for me, and it's also somewhat different from Escape Pod's usual style. Enough so that I wasn't sure about selling it to myself, and I co-opted Murr and Scott into reading it. Neither of them rejected it, so if you don't like this week's story, no, okay, it's still my fault. Once again, this story was in 20 Epics, published by All-Star Stories in 2006. The story is read for us by Maya Whitaker, a.k.a. The Nitwitch, from the podcast Nitwitch's Sci-Fi and Fantasy Zone. She's also an experienced voiceover artist, and her company, Superior Audio Works, is starting to do some cool things with fiction production that I hope I'll be able to tell you about soon. So, please be seated. Your server will be with you shortly. It's story time. 
The Dinner Game by Stephen Ely. She waits for him at the Rose. The hotel's restaurant is in a cavern filled with crystal light. A pianist plays Chopin on a dais before the black windows, and conversations ebb and flow with the nocturnes. Everyone at every table is beautiful. She is the most beautiful. She wears a plain green velvet dress with two malachite clips in her hair. When he enters, she looks beyond him as if searching for someone else. She smiles and waves at empty space. She doesn't look at him until he reaches the table, and then her breath catches. He pulls the chair out and sits. He wears a charcoal suit with a bold purple shirt and tie, but a lock of hair hangs loose across his forehead. And his tie is slightly off to the left. She knows his habits, and this is new. A crooked tie says, "I've hacked through a hundred miles of jungle to reach you, or I want you to believe I have." He lifts the menu, and the waiter is there beside him. He nods at the waiter and hands the menu back without looking at it. They do not need to order; they are known. They have done this many times. Do I know you? She says. I remember you, he says, and she smiles. It's another game. He has been a spy fleeing his country. She has been an adulterous first lady. They've been psychiatrist and schizophrenic, vampire and victim, two blind people speculating on a world they cannot see. They will make love as themselves when they leave the rose for a room upstairs. And tomorrow he will finish his business and leave her city. But first they dine as other people. In a past life, she asks. They've done that one before. She was Joan of Arc. He was her confessor. He shakes his head. In a past world, you were a goddess, the star consort, lover of the Earth God. She is surprised for the briefest of moments. Then she smiles, affecting relief. You do remember, I was the night sky, less favored than his first wife. But far more beautiful. You came to Earth because you loved him, but his wife, the day mother, was jealous, and she turned him against you. He became suspicious of your comings and goings. And chained you to the mountains with a band of light across the sky. Some would find our history strange. Earth deities are usually female, she says, probing him, challenging him. This was a stony country. It wasn't fertile, and it didn't nurture. It killed those who lived upon it if they were not respectful. I was the first king to found a city upon it. There were no lasting cities. She objects. The wine comes, and the steward pours silently. She always tasted first. This one is a crisp Chablis, tasting of apples frozen in snow. She shivers slightly at the feel of it in her mouth. He nods to the steward. You're right. It didn't last beyond my reign. To build it all, I had to swear an oath to the Earth God, and when I broke that oath, the city was destroyed with all in it. She smiles a little. Did you break the oath for love of me? He does not smile. Of course not. Do you think I would kill ten thousand of my own people for such an inane reason as love? 
I was tricked into breaking the oath. She sets down the wine, and there is soup on the table before her. The pianist is no longer playing. The talk around them is like surf on the ocean. I wasn't present when the city fell. How are you tricked? Tell me from the beginning. His lips tighten, and then he nods. His eyes do not show whether he's stifling a smile or an argument. My people first came into the Stone Valley because we were hunted. There was a large empire on the coast. The emperor had had a religious conversion to some ancient and barbarous god and decreed that all written tablets in his cities were to be destroyed. To demonstrate the strength of his new god, all the scholars capable of writing the tablets were to be sacrificed to it. Your people were the scholars. He nods again. Scholars and priests of the old religion and their families. My father was the Hierophant. He had tried to train me to take his place, but I was always dull in matters of the gods. I pursued the military arts instead. When my father was the first one flayed upon the steps of the emperor's new temple, my talents became useful. We could not win, of course. We were forced to retreat, and there was death at every step. But we fought better than they expected, and we spilled nearly as much blood as we shed ourselves. Until you reached the stone valley of the earth god, she says, your pursuers wouldn't follow you farther. The valley was cursed, and your gods of knowledge and the emperor's new god of blood had no power there. But you had no choice. We had no choice, he agrees. He sips his soup without looking at it. His eyes do not leave hers. We had run as far as we could. There were others living already in the valley. Scraping a bare existence on a few flocks of sheep and constant prayer, they hadn't the will nor the weapons to fight us. We made friendships with them and persuaded them to join us. You taught them to build and to write, and together you erected towers and a wall. Your memory is good, but you're getting ahead, he says. We tried to build, but the stones which gave themselves so easily for the valley people's ovens and huts would not yield for our wall. They blunted our picks. The rocks that broke would shatter into useless rubble. When we persisted, the valley walls came down upon us in rock slides. This was my fault. I did not begin to believe in the earth god of the valley until two of my cousins were killed. He pauses to finish his glass, and she notices that the room is quieter than before. Several of the tables are empty. Their bowls are empty as well, and are taken away. I humbled myself before the valley people, he continues, and I learned their way of prayer. After two months my prayers were answered, and in a vision I was shown the path to a secret cave high in the valley. The vision didn't come from the earth god, she says slowly. It is unusual for either of them to tell so much of the story alone. But she has little to say yet. Her part has not yet entered the story. I know that now, although I didn't then. It came from the day mother. She always did most of his thinking, and the path she showed me was very carefully chosen. The main course is delivered by two waiters whose faces she does not see. She has what she always has beef medallions, rare, with a wild mushroom sauce.
His looks like curried lamb. They bring more wine as well. The crystal chandeliers are dimmer now. The oil lamp in the center of the table is brighter. I just realized today that I've never seen you in daylight, he says, startling and annoying her. The warrior king that she had begun to see is gone, replaced by the businessman with a slightly crooked tie. She still does not know his name. She does not want to know it. You've never seen me outside this hotel, she says, raising her glass. She knows the wine without tasting it, a full red Beaujolais with hints of copper in the finish. I meet all of my lovers here. Both of your lovers, he says, and raises his glass to toast her. She does not return it. Of course he knows whose mistress she is, but he has never been coarse enough to speak of it directly. The path brought you to the earth god, she says with unusual force. She will decide later whether to punish him for breaking the game. It did. I climbed all day and reached him at sunset. There were no torches in his cave, but he glowed a dark red like a coal removed from its furnace. Or like blood, she mutters. His eyes flicker to the glass of wine still in her hand. His mouth opens, but whatever words he has chosen, he holds them back and swallows them with a bite of curry. After he's eaten a little, he says, I went to my knees before him and lowered my head to the floor of his cave. From that position I told my history. I spoke of the emperor's terrible faith and the sacrifice of my father. I told him of the battle we had brought to his threshold and the need of my people to survive. At that, the earth god spoke for the first time. He looks at her expectantly. He said... Why? Her throat rasps the word as she imagines stone sliding against stone. I thought long for an answer. Finally, I told him the truth. I wanted us to live for our revenge, not only against the emperor, but against his god. We would destroy that god with the aid of a stronger one. Flattery is always good, she says, and sips. The restaurant is nearly silent. There is no background conversation now, only the distant tapping of cutlery against plates. It's very dim, and the other diners are too far for her to see them. The earth god said, Build your city in my name. Build the greatest city upon this world. When I am first among gods, your children shall strike down your enemy. But you king of exiles, will never leave this valley. He wanted to teach you the patience of the gods, she says. Perhaps you would know better than I. I always believed he wasn't that foresighted. I think he just didn't want me running off with his gifts. In any case, it sounded like the best bargain I was likely to get, and I swore that oath in the name of my people. Then he dismissed me. It was full dark. As the day mother intended. Yes. The climb I had made was too treacherous to descend at night, but in the starlight I saw an easier trail leading up to a low peak. I took that path. Where you met the star consort and were consumed with lust. Where I met you, yes, and fell in love with you, he says, 
he adjusts his tie. It is still crooked. But I was not consumed then with lust or love. That took many years. She smiles a little and drinks her wine. To a goddess, many years are an instant. But I remember that first night. I was chained, as you said, and had the freedom of the mountains, but couldn't leave them. I could only meet my captor at that ridge where the mountains met the valley. Because the earth god was bound to the valley, he says, and she raises a brow. Now he's stating the obvious. We were together until sunrise, she goes on. I had known mortals before, but none had your spirit. I remember the way you held me, and the way you looked at me, and I felt in you the power that could strike my chains and free me. I was a fool, he says abruptly. She says nothing. He says, You haunted me after that night. I fulfilled my responsibilities to my people. I led them well, and I caused the city to be built. We named it for the Earth God. In weak moments, I was tempted to give the city your name. That would have been disastrous. Indeed, much worse than I realized at the time. But every day you were in my thoughts. I could not visit you every night, but I went to the Earth God as often as I could find reasons. And when I left his cave, I came to you in the darkness. I remember. I wove charms upon him to tire him so that he wouldn't look for me when you were here with me. So many blessed nights. It was you who blessed them. Meanwhile, the earth god blessed my days. The city grew by his gifts. The stones yielded to us in the sizes and shapes we needed. An underground spring was struck and a channel made so it could flow into the city. In the second winter, another welled up of its own accord, hot and smelling of brimstone, and my palace was constructed around it. Copper was always plentiful, and we had brought with us the secret of bronze. In the third year, the earth god gave us a vein of gold. In the fifth year, jade. By then we'd begun to attract notice from the empire and from lands to the south. They tried to invade you twice, but when that failed, they came back to trade. He nods. An army of fifty thousand broke against us. The valley was narrow, and we had a complete mastery of it. And every man, builder, craftsman, or scribe, was also a soldier. But when they brought caravans in the place of catapults, we welcomed them, and soon our hospitality was legendary. And with the legend grew your wealth. With that wealth, you slowly sapped the empire of its own and built your army in the guise of merchants. Your revenge would be a flood upon them in the next generation. You whispered this to me often as we lay together. Too often, she does not say, but she remembers. He has always wanted to talk in the moments after, when all she desired was stillness. Yes, that is what should have been, he says, and empties his glass. Their plates are empty now, their silver dirty, but she cannot remember the taste of her food. What would have been but for the schemes of goddesses? I had no scheme, she says indignant. I never said a word to turn you from your course. My love was given to you freely. It was a poisoned cup, he says, but I didn't mean you. 
Our passion was a trap, but it was the day mother who led me into it. I was her instrument to build her husband's power and to dispose of you, her rival. And together you thwarted my own ambition. I was so distracted by my love for you that I never married a mortal woman. I never had the children that should have led us from the valley. I'm very sorry, she says with some sincerity. I had often thought of children, but I didn't dare while I was bound to the earth. He would have known instantly, so I chose not to conceive. That was well in the end. If you had had them, I would have had to kill them. She freezes. The restaurant is utterly silent. Nothing moves but the dark red wine still swirling in the glass she holds. I learned the truth about you, he says, the secret you withheld from me. This was after the second decade, when the magician came to me with the star forged iron. He has never spoken to her like this. She is tempted to walk away from the table. But the story compels her, as none of their other stories ever have. She needs to hear its end. She says, thinking quickly, The star forged iron that you made into a hammer, the hammer with which you broke my chains. I was at the height of my power. My city was ascendant. The earth god was growing bold in his pride. He began to speak freely of his own plans of conquest. He spoke of you, too. As his slave who would travel the earth chained at his side. I became angry. I was concerned that he would learn of our ever more frequent nights, and perhaps I was jealous of his claim upon you. I wanted to be your sole lover, and it may be that in my own dark pride I wanted to be your master. He was a god, and you were immortal, she says. That is the only way in which he was your better. But I see now that in some ways you were the same. I will not deny it, he says. There are many things that I am ashamed of. But remember that on midwinter's night I climbed the mountain with that hammer. The earth god knew my intention and tried to stop me. We fought, and I struck him unconscious. You and I warmed each other for just a moment in the freezing wind, and I swore to you my love. And I struck the chains of skylight that held you to the world. That is one difference between me and your other. The dinner plates are gone now. Before her is a small glass of port. The world is quiet, and beyond the flame of their oil lamp, only the stars shine through the window. She says, You made me a promise when you set me free. I bade you to go far from the earth, God. And far from me as well. But I swore that I would find you again, in any life, in any world. I said that after my father's revenge had been taken upon the emperor's god, I would be free of all other oaths, I would win you for my own, and we would wed as equals. And I? You were stunned for a moment, as you are right now. Then you laughed, and you were gone. She swirls and sips the port. It is almost too sweet and has a copper tinge like the dinner's burgundy. You must have learned later why I laughed. I learned before the summer, for word came that the empire that was our enemy 
had collapsed. The emperor's god had forsaken him. His prayers, his sacrifices were met with silence. She had left. She drinks the rest of the port in two swallows, without stopping to savor it. She knows the copper finish well. It is the taste of blood. I nearly killed myself for not seeing it at once, he says. The emperor's god had another name from the furthest antiquity, and of the most ancient gods, the gods of blood and sacrifice. It is said that they are all one, and that god is female. True in every word, she agrees, for the world must be given birth. Before I swore to wed you, I had sworn to kill you. Love is complicated, she says. Did you have the means? Of course I did. I knew the power of the star-forged iron. It was easy to have a sword made of the same stuff. And the day-mother, ever eager to help me, showed me another secret path that began in the mountains, but did not end in our world. You took it. Of course I did. I had to find you. As the empire had fallen, and our city was now the shining crown of the known world, I believed my work there was finished. Others could carry on where I had left off, and the earth god's glory could only grow. My oath never to leave the valley was no longer relevant. But the earth god believed otherwise. He did not look to the future. He did not consider that I sought you, whom he also had reason to seek. He saw only disloyalty, and he punished me for it. Before I left the world, as I ascended the highest mountain, I felt it buckle beneath me. I looked behind and saw the towers of gold and jade fall to the earth. The city was of stone and could not burn, but the world opened, and fire poured over it. I watched all of this for a day and a night. I heard the last cries of my people. They cried my name. A glass breaks near the kitchen. She jumps. She had forgotten where they were. When the cries were silent, you turned again and continued on the path, she says. You know that I did. I walked from my world with a torn heart and a star-forged sword. I walked into the next, and I looked for you there. It took you many years. You ascended to power there, and forged new bonds with new gods. The restaurant is brighter again, and she sees a man in a tuxedo at the piano. He begins an aria from Bach. And I nearly failed to recognize you, for you were so close to me and had a different face. But in time, I understood you, and I confronted you. I brought my weapon close. But you didn't kill me, she says, for here we are now. I nearly killed you. I tried to bring my anger to the surface, to find enough strength for one moment to strike you down. But my aim fell short. I broke your chains in that world instead, and set you free. I told you that I would find you again, and I have. The tide of conversation sweeps over them again, and all of the tables are full. The spell of their words is lifted, and for the first time, she sees the man before her as he truly is. He is not the more powerful of her two lovers, but he is the stronger.
and more proud. World after world, he says, I have chased you. Age after age I find you. Always you are bound to another. Always you are confined by this other to some palace, some island. Some hotel, she says, and in every age you come to love me before you recognize me. The check comes to him. It is already charged to his room. He takes a black pen from his jacket and signs without looking at it. Always, he says, in every world I fight my way to you on the final night as I have tonight. The disheveled hair, the crooked tie. Her lovers are business partners, or were before today. She cannot imagine what happened between them before dinner. He continues, And although I intend in every world to fulfill my earliest oath and to end us both so that I can rest, my hand is stayed by love. Always I set you free instead, determined that the next world will be the last. Will tonight be our last then? In this world, could you finish me with that? She looks at the pen. It is a dark metal, and from the way he holds it, she knows that it must be heavy. I don't know. They stand in unison. For one night, the one who claims you cannot trouble us. I could destroy you tonight for your past, but I love you too, and I could free you to go through that hotel door. You still won't see me in daylight, she says, and takes his hand in hers. They are walking now. The crystal chandeliers shine light on every beautiful face. No, but in the morning I could find the door. I could follow you through it, and eventually, many years from now, I would find you again. It is winter, and the lobby is cold. She walks close to him for warmth. She can smell cigars and sweat, and can feel his pulse in her hand. Their hearts pound. Many years are an instant to me, she says. He presses her closer. Then we have a little time. They take an elevator to a room, and she makes it dark so that she cannot see his face, or any of the faces he has worn. In the dark, they make love as themselves. She leaves marks on his back and cries out louder than she has ever cried before. It is why she plays the game. They will play it again many times, and they will have many different roles. But tonight it is over, and the relief runs through her like a bolt. And that was our story. I can imagine the was-it-speculative-fiction debate might come up again on this one. As the author, I feel I'm the least qualified to comment. So, two weeks ago, we ran Kevin J. Anderson's story, Paradox and Greenblatt, Attorneys at Law. The story got a very positive reception. It looks like a lot of people had a niche for a light but logical time travel story, and this piece scratched it. Many people did complain that they could see the end coming. Odin said... As soon as the old DNA on the glass gambit was played, it was obvious where the story was headed. Others agreed, but said it didn't diminish their enjoyment of the piece that much. One of the few real complaints came from George, who said, I'm starting to wonder if I'm the only one who likes action rather than dialogue in my science fiction stories. 
No, you're not the only one, George. Though I imagine this week's story probably drove you nuts. In other feedback, I want to go back a few weeks and read a comment that was recently posted on episode 70, Squonk the Dragon. Steven said, I've just caught up with a skate pod and happened to listen to Squonk with my son. I don't think I'll soon forget it. He's adopted. He knows it and knows who his birth mother is, even though she gave him up when he was six months old. My wife and I still get comments similar to, Oh, you're not his real parents. As much as we try to defend him against those hateful sentiments, he occasionally hears them. Squawk made him laugh. It made me laugh and cry, happily. Thanks. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate your sharing. That's the sort of thing that keeps us going when it's too late at night. And here's a promo for a dramatic podcast I've been enjoying quite a bit. There were those who thought the dawn of the second space age would unite humanity in a common cause. They were wrong. The phantoms that haunt us today will haunt us tomorrow. War. Corruption. Poverty. Injustice. But there is always hope. Silent Universe. With a full cast of voice actors, sound effects, and music, it's like primetime drama for your ears. Subscribe now at www.silentuniverse.com. The production values are very high, and the story so far has been solid. It's space adventure with some political complexity to it, and I'm digging it. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is released on a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. All of the rights are reserved by our authors. If you're looking for some good horror fiction, check out our sister podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org. And remember that we're a listener-supported paying market. So if you're enjoying what you hear, and you'd like to help keep us going unto eternity, consider that donate button at escapepod.org. Whether you donate or not, I encourage you to tell your friends if you like us. If you don't like us, well, as Joss Wheaton said, now is the time for silent contemplation. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, the best eclectic monster movie surf rock in the universe. If you don't like them, then you don't like eclectic monster movie surf rock. Otherwise, check them out at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Next week is our Halloween episode. And we didn't send all the ghost stories over to Pseudopod. We'll see you then, and have fun.